Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 1 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Pericles. Now there had been from the beginning a sort of seam hidden beneath the surface of affairs, as in a piece of iron, which faintly indicated a divergence between the popular and the aristocratic program, but the emulous ambition of these two men cut a deep gash in the state, and caused one section of it to be called the demos, or the people, and the other the oligoi, or the few. At this time, therefore, particularly, Pericles gave the reins to the people, and made his policy one of pleasing them, ever devising some sort of pageant in the town for the masses, or a feast, or a procession, amusing them like children with not uncouth delights, and sending out sixty triremes annually, on which large numbers of the citizens sailed for about eight months under pay, practicing at the same time and acquiring the art of seamanship. In addition to this, he dispatched a thousand settlers into the Chersonesus, and five hundred to Naxos, and to Andros half that number, and a thousand to Thrace to settle with the Bisalte, and others to Italy, when the site of Sybaris was settled, which they named Thurii. All this he did by way of lightening the city of its mob of lazy and idle busybodies, rectifying the embarrassments of the poorer people, and giving the alien for neighbors an imposing garrison which should prevent rebellion. But that which brought the most delightful adornment to Athens, and the greatest amazement to the rest of mankind, that which alone now testifies for Hellas that her ancient power and splendor, of which so much is told, was no idle fiction. I mean his construction of sacred edifices. This, more than all the public measures of Pericles, his enemies maligned and slandered. They cried out in the assemblies, The people has lost its fair fame and is in ill repute, because it has removed the public monies of the Hellenes from Delos into its own keeping and that seemliest of all excuses which it had to urge against its accusers, to wit, that out of fear of the barbarians it took the public funds from that sacred isle, and was now guarding them in a stronghold, of this Pericles has robbed it. And surely Hellas is insulted with a dire insult, and manifestly subjected to tyranny, when she sees that, with her own enforced contributions for the war, we are gilding and bedizening our city, which for all the world like a wanton woman, adds to her wardrobe precious stones and costly statues, and temples worth their millions. For his part, Pericles would instruct the people that it owed no account of their monies to the allies, provided it carried on the war for them and kept off the barbarians. Not a horse do they furnish, said he, not a ship, not a hoplite, but money simply, and this belongs not to those who give it, but to those who take it, if only they furnish that for which they take it and pay. And it is but meet that the city, when she is sufficiently equipped with all that is necessary for prosecuting the war, should apply her abundance to such works, as by their completion will bring everlasting glory, and while in process of completion will bring that abundance into actual service, in that all sorts of activity and diversified demands arise, which rouse every art and stir every hand, and bring, as it were, the whole city under pay, so that she not only adorns but supports herself as well from her own resources. And it was true that his military expeditions supplied those who were in the full vigor of manhood with abundant resources from the common funds, and in his desire that the unwarlike throng of common laborers should neither have no share at all in the public receipts, nor yet get fees for laziness and idleness, 
he boldly suggested to the people projects for great constructions, and designs for works which would call many arts into play, and involve long periods of time, in order that the stay-at-homes, no whit less than the sailors and sentinels and soldiers, might have a pretext for getting a beneficial share of the public wheel. The materials to be used were stone, bronze, ivory, gold, ebony, and cypress wood. The arts which should elaborate and work up these materials were those of the carpenter, molder, bronze-smith, stone-cutter, dyer, worker in gold and ivory, painter, embroiderer, embosser, to say nothing of the forwarders and furnishers of the material, such as factors, sailors and pilots by sea, and by land, wagon-makers, trainers of yoked beasts, and drivers. There were also rope-makers, weavers, leather-workers, road-builders, and miners. And since each particular art, like a general with the army under his separate command, kept its own throng of unskilled and untrained laborers in compact array, to be as an instrument unto player and as body unto soul in subordinate service, it came to pass that for every age, almost, and in every capacity the city's great abundance was distributed, and scattered abroad by such demands. So the works arose, no less towering in their grandeur than inimitable in the grace of their outlines, since the workmen eagerly strove to surpass themselves in the beauty of their handicraft. And yet the most wonderful thing about them was the speed with which they rose. Each one of them, men thought, would require many successive generations to complete it, but all of them were fully completed in the heyday of a single administration. And yet they say that once on a time when Agatharchus the painter was boasting loudly of the speed and ease with which he made his figures, Zeuxis heard him and said, Mine take and last a long time. And it is true that deafness and speed in working do not impart to the work an abiding weight of influence, nor an exactness of beauty, whereas the time which is put out to loan in laboriously creating pays a large and generous interest in the preservation of the creation. For this reason are the works of Pericles all the more to be wondered at. They were created in a short time, for all time. Each one of them, in its beauty, was even then and at once unique. But in the freshness of its vigor it is, even to the present day, recent and newly wrought. Such is the bloom of perpetual newness, as it were, upon these works of his, which makes them ever to look untouched by time, as though the unfaltering breath of an ageless spirit has been infused into them. His general manager and general overseer was Phidias, although the several works had great architects and artists besides. Of the Parthenon, for instance, with its cella of a hundred feet in length, Callicrates and Ictinus were the architects. It was Corobus who began to build the sanctuary of the mysteries at Eleusis, and he planted the columns on the floor and yoked their capitals together with architraves. But on his death Metagenes of the Deme Zipit carried up the frieze and the upper tier of columns, while Xenocles of the Deme Colargus set on the high lantern over the shrine. For the long wall, concerning which Socrates says he himself heard Pericles introduce a measure, Callicrates was the contractor. Cratinus pokes fun at this work for its slow progress, and in these words. Since ever so long now, in word, has Pericles pushed the thing, in fact he does not budget. The odium, which was arranged internally with many tiers of seats and many pillars, and which had a roof made with a circular slope from a single peak, they say was an exact reproduction of the great king's pavilion, and this too was built under the superintendence of Pericles. Wherefore Cratinus and his Thracian women rails at him again, The squeal-headed Zeus! Lo, here he comes, the odium like a cap upon his cranium! Now that for good and all the ostracism is o'er. 
Then first did Pericles, so fond of honor was he, get a decree passed that a musical contest be held as part of the Pan-Athenaic festival, and prescribed how the contestants must blow the flute, or sing, or pluck the zither. These musical contests were witnessed, both then and thereafter, in the Odeon. The Propylaea of the Acropolis were brought to completion in the space of five years, Menescles being their architect. A wonderful thing happened in the course of their building, which indicated that the goddess was not holding herself aloof, but was a helper both in the inception and in the completion of the work. One of its artificers, the most active and zealous of them all, lost his footing and fell from a great height, and lay in a sorry plight, despaired of by the physicians. Pericles was much cast down at this, but the goddess appeared to him in a dream and prescribed a course of treatment for him to use, so that he speedily and easily healed the man. It was in commemoration of this that he set up the bronze statue of Athena Hagia on the Acropolis near the altar of that goddess, which was there before, as they say. But it was Phidias who produced the great golden image of the goddess, and he is duly inscribed on the tablet as the workman who made it. Everything almost was under his charge, and all the artists and artisans, as I have said, were under his superintendence, owing to his friendship with Pericles. This brought envy upon the one, and contumely on the other, to the effect that Phidias made assignations for Pericles with free-born women, who would come ostensibly to see the works of art. The comic poets took up this story, and bespattered Pericles with charges of abounding wantonness, connecting their slanders with the wife of Menippus, a man who was his friend, and a colleague in the generalship, and with the bird-culture of Pyrolampus, who, since he was the comrade of Pericles, was accused of using his peacocks to bribe the women with whom Pericles consorted. And why should any one be astonished that men of wanton life lose no occasion for offering up sacrifices, as it were, of contumelious abuse of their superiors, to the evil deity of popular envy, when even Stesimbrotus of Thessos has ventured to make public charge against Pericles, of a dreadful and fabulous impiety with his son's wife. To such degree, it seems, is truth hedged about with difficulty, and hard to capture by research, since those who come after the events in question find that lapse of time is an obstacle to their proper perception of them, while the research of their contemporaries into men's deeds and lives, partly through envious hatred and partly through fawning flattery, defiles and distorts the truth. Thucydides and his party kept denouncing Pericles for playing fast and loose with the public monies, and annihilating the revenues. Pericles therefore asked the people in assembly whether they thought he had expended too much, and on their declaring that it was altogether too much, Well then, said he, let it not have been spent on your account but mine, and I will make the inscriptions of dedication in my own name. When Pericles had said this, whether it was that they admired his magnanimity or vied with his ambition to get the glory of his works, they cried out with a loud voice and bade him take freely from the public funds for his outlays and to spare naught whatsoever. And finally he ventured to undergo with Thucydides the contest of the ostracism, wherein he secured his rival's banishment, and the dissolution of the faction which had been arrayed against him. Thus then, seeing that political differences were entirely remitted, and the city had become a smooth surface, as it were, and altogether united, he brought under his own control Athens and all the issues dependent on the Athenians, tributes, armies, triremes, the islands, the sea, the vast power derived from Hellenes, vast also from barbarians, and a supremacy that was securely hedged about with subject nations, friendship and dynastic alliances. But then he was no longer the same man as before, nor alike submissive to the people and ready to yield and give in to the desires of the multitude as steersmen to the breezes. 
nay, rather, forsaking his former lax and sometimes rather effeminate management of the people, as it were a flowery and soft melody, he struck the high and clear note of an aristocratic and kingly statesmanship, and employing it for the best interests of all in a direct and undeviating fashion, he led the people, for the most part willingly, by his persuasions and instructions. And yet there were times when they were sorely vexed with him, and then he tightened the reins and forced them into the way of their advantage with the master's hand, for all the world like a wise physician who treats a complicated disease of long standing, occasionally with harmless indulgences to please his patient, and occasionally, too, with caustics and bitter drugs which work salvation. For whereas all sorts of distempers, as was to be expected, were rife in a rabble which possessed such vast empires, and was so endowed by nature, that he could manage each one of these cases suitably, and more than anything else he used the people's hopes and fears like rudders, so to speak, giving timely check to their arrogance, and allaying and comforting their despair. Thus he proved that rhetoric, or the art of speaking, is, to use Plato's words, and enchantment of the soul, and that her chiefest business is a careful study of the affections and passions, which are, so to speak, strings and stops of the soul, requiring a very judicious fingering and striking. The reason for his success was not his power as a speaker merely, but, as Thucydides says, the reputation of his life and the confidence reposed in him, as one who was manifestly proven to be utterly disinterested and superior to bribes. He made the city, great as it was when he took it, the greatest and richest of all cities, and grew to be superior in power to kings and tyrants. Some of these actually appointed him guardian of their sons, but he did not make his estate a single drachma greater than it was when his father left it to him. Of his power there can be no doubt, since Thucydides gives so clear an exposition of it, and the comic poets unwittingly reveal it even in their malicious jibes, calling him and his associates New Pisistratidae, and urging him to take solemn oath not to make himself a tyrant, on the plea, forsooth, that his preeminence was incommensurate with a democracy and too oppressive. Telecledes says that the Athenians had handed over to him, with the city's assessment, the cities themselves, to bind or release as he pleases, their ramparts of stone to build up if he likes, and then to pull down again straight away, their treaties, their forces, their might, peace and riches, and all the fair goods of good fortune. Rogers. And this was not the fruit of a golden moment, nor the culminating popularity of an administration that bloomed for a season. Nay, rather, he stood first for forty years among such men as Ephialtes, Leocrates, Myronides, Simon, Ptolemides, and Thucydides, and after the deposition of Thucydides and his ostracism, for no less than fifteen of these years did he secure an imperial sway that was continuous and unbroken by means of his annual tenure of the office of general. During all these years he kept himself untainted by corruption, although he was not altogether indifferent to money-making. Indeed, the wealth which was legally his by inheritance from his father, that it might not from sheer neglect take to itself wings and fly away, nor yet cause him much trouble and loss of time when he was busy with higher things, he set into such orderly dispensation as he thought was easiest and most exact. This was to sell his annual products altogether in the lump, and then to buy in the market each article as it was needed, and so provide the ways and means of daily life. For this reason he was not liked by his sons when they grew up, nor did their wives find in him a liberal purveyor, but they murmured at his expenditure for the day merely and under the most exact restrictions, there being no surplus of supplies at all, as in a great house and under generous circumstances, 
but every outlay and every intake proceeding all by count and measure. His agent in securing all this great exactitude was a single servant, Evangelus, who was either gifted by nature or trained by Pericles, so as to surpass everybody else in domestic economy. It is true that this conduct was not in accord with the wisdom of Anaxagoras, since that philosopher actually abandoned his house and left his land to lie fallow for sheep-grazing, owing to the lofty thoughts with which he was inspired. But the life of a speculative philosopher is not the same thing, I think, as that of a statesman. The one exercises his intellect without the aid of instruments and independent of external matters for noble ends, whereas the other, inasmuch as he brings his superior excellence into close contact with the common needs of mankind, must sometimes find wealth not merely one of the necessities of life, but also one of its noble things, as was actually the case with Pericles, who gave aid to many poor men. And besides, they say, that Anaxagoras himself, at a time when Pericles was absorbed in business, lay on his couch all neglected, in his old age, starving himself to death, his head already muffled for departure, and that when the matter came to the ears of Pericles, he was struck with dismay, and ran at once to the poor man, and besought him most fervently to live, bewailing not so much that great teacher's lot as his own, were he now to be bereft of such a counsellor in the conduct of the state. Then Anaxagoras, so the story goes, unmuffled his head and said to him, Pericles, even those who need a lamp pour oil therein. When the Lacedaemonians began to be annoyed by the increasing power of the Athenians, Pericles, by way of inciting the people to cherish yet loftier thoughts and to deem itself worthy of great achievements, introduced a bill to the effect that all Hellenes, wheresoever resident in Europe or in Asia, small and large cities alike, should be invited to send deputies to a council at Athens. This was to deliberate concerning the Hellenic sanctuaries which the barbarians had burned down, concerning the sacrifices which were due to the gods in the name of Hellas in fulfillment of vows made when they were fighting with the barbarians, and concerning the sea, that all might sail it fearlessly and keep the peace. To extend this invitation, twenty men, of such as were above fifty years of age, were sent out, five of whom invited the Ionians and Dorians in Asia and on the islands between Lesbos and Rhodes, five visited the regions on the Hellespont and in Thrace as far as Byzantium, five others were sent into Boeotia and Phocis and Peloponnesus, and from here, by way of the Azolian Locrians, into the neighboring continent, as far as Arcanania and Ambracia while the rest proceeded through Euboea to the Oceans and the Malaic Gulf and the Pythotic Achaeans and the Thessalians, urging them all to come and take part in the deliberations for the peace and common welfare of Hellas. But nothing was accomplished, nor did the cities come together by deputy, owing to the opposition of the Lacedaemonians, as it is said, since the effort met with its first check in Peloponnesus. I have cited this incident, however, to show forth the man's disposition and the greatness of his thoughts. In his capacity as general, he was famous above all things for his saving caution. He neither undertook of his own accord a battle involving much uncertainty and peril, nor did he envy and imitate those who took great risks, enjoyed brilliant good fortune, and so were admired as great generals. And he was forever saying to his fellow citizens that, so far as lay in his power, they would remain alive forever and be immortals. So when he saw that Tolnides, son of Ptolemaeus, all on account of his previous good fortune and of the exceeding great honor bestowed upon him for his wars, was getting ready, quite inopportunely, to make an incursion into Boeotia, and that he had persuaded the bravest and most ambitious men of military age to volunteer for the campaign, as many as a thousand of them, 
aside from the rest of his forces, he tried to restrain and dissuade him in the popular assembly, uttering then that well-remembered saying, to wit, that if he would not listen to Pericles, he would yet do full well to wait for that wisest of all counsellors, time. This saying brought him only moderate repute at the time, but a few days afterwards, when word was brought in that Ptolemies himself was dead after defeat in battle near Coronea, and that many brave citizens were dead likewise, then it brought Pericles great repute as well as good will, for that he was a man of discretion and patriotism. Of all his expeditions, that to the Chersonesus was held in most loving remembrance, since it proved the salvation of the Hellenes who dwelt there. Not only did he bring thither a thousand Athenian colonists, and stock the cities anew with vigorous manhood, but he also belted the neck of the isthmus with defensive bulwarks from sea to sea, and so intercepted the incursions of the Thracians who swarmed about the Chersonesus, and shut out the perpetual and grievous war in which the country was all the time involved, in close touch as it was with the neighboring communities of barbarians, and full to overflowing of robber bands whose haunts were on or within its borders.' 